The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. This is Palm Sunday, and so I decided we're going to look at uh, Matthew 21, which is the account of the of Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Christ. He's entering into the city of Jerusalem, and at the end of this week, he's going to be crucified. Um, but there's something about there's something about Jesus, about his very nature, that affects people when they come into his presence. And so, when he was here on the earth, even though he came as a man, he had a humanity, took on a humanity like ours, except unfallen. And uh, as he moved around. It became obvious, and this was said in, first, in John chapter 1 about him, uh, as uh, he was just before his baptism. Um, and this is what it says. There was the true light. John said he was not the light, John the Baptist. But then it says, there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Now what that means is, is if somebody gets in the presence of Christ, it reveals who they are and what they are. And uh, that's a scary thing. Uh, if you go, enter into a situation where there's a light that penetrates your very being. It also says in John 3, chapter 19, verses 19 through 21, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. You notice that most crimes are done in the dark. And does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the light comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. One of the truths about living the Christian life is that it's Christ living in us. And uh, you can say, well, that's just me. Well, we don't want to see you. We want to see Christ. Christ lives in you. And Christ has certain characteristics that show up in the lives of the people in whom he dwells. And so in this chapter, in chapter 21, Jesus enters into Jerusalem and the light comes into the city, which is the capital of the king. And uh, we see that when Jesus comes in to the city, the light comes into the city and it reveals the truth about, and there's three, there's four judgments in this chapter that take place just by Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem, the capital of the King of Glory. Let me read to you. We're going to look at uh, several things before judgment. The first one is the judgment on the temple. And listen to this, the first 13 verses of chapter 21, if you're following. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even a colt the foal of the beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them. And he sat on the coats. 
And one, some of the translations, they said, and they sat on them, and people are thinking, well, how does he sit on a donkey and it's full? Well, he's only sitting on one, but he's sitting on the coats of his disciples who laid the, their coats on him. Most of the crowds spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. They're, they're treating Jesus like he's the king. Amazing, because he's coming in not on a war horse, but on a little foal of a donkey. But God opens their eyes. Jesus opens their eyes. The crowd's going ahead of him, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, which means, save us now. Hosanna to the son of David. They're actually attributing the ability of Jesus, an ability to Jesus that he could save them. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple. Now he's going to go into the temple, and this is when the judgment takes place in the temple. The, the, the light, the true light that's come into the world has just entered into the temple. The purpose of the temple was to, was to display the glory of God, but they had failed miserably, the people who inhabited it. But Jesus comes into the temple, and what does he do? Well, what they expected him to do was to cleanse the temple from the Gentile pollution. But what he does instead, he goes into the, and he, and he uh, cleanses the temple from the Jewish pollution of the Gentiles. This is what he does. And Jesus entered the temple and dro drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. The light cleanses the temple. Now you have to understand that these money changers and the sacrifice dealers were basically licensed by those who had control of the temple for a fee. And so because you had to use special money, the money changers would force you to trade the money that you had for the money that would work in the temple, and they made a profit. And those who were selling the sacrifices were selling them at a profit to line their pockets. And Jesus cleanses the temple. And, uh, and this is the judgment that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. Can you imagine Jesus going into the temple, which was built in order to glorify, to show the glory of the living God, of whom he is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity? And so just his presence, and in his presence, he drives out those who are polluting the temple of God that was displaying his temple, and uh, this is the judgment on the temple because there was no true worship there. They had, they had transformed it into a robber's den. I remember one time we had a guy visit the church and we had some things on the table over here that were, they were I forget what they were, they were selling them, but I think it was for, maybe it was the women's ministry or something, some, some things. And he talked to me and he was very disturbed by that because he thought we were turning the temple of God into a robber's den. I said, well, Two things. First, this is not a this is not the temple of God. This is a gymnasium, and 
And we meet here to worship together. And it turns into the very church of Jesus Christ because of the people who are here. It's the people. It's not the chairs, is it? It's the people. And he's toughening you up for some things. So he makes you sit in these hard chairs. But we have gathered to worship the living God. We exist for the glory of God. And so if Jesus were to visit us, we would be very much aware of that. Now, when he says in John 1, there was a true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. The word enlightens here means to he shines a light on them so they can see the truth about themselves. That's really necessary. I don't know when was the last time you confessed sins to God, last time you confessed your sins to the living God. Well, when you get in the presence of Jesus, it makes you want to confess your sin because you see yourself as you really are in his light. And that's what was going on here. This is, this is uh, we could, probably a better term than triumphal entry was the king comes to, to, in judgment to his capital because he comes and as he pours out these different judgments, which we'll see there are four of them. The first one here is a judgment on the temple because there was no true worship in the temple. And so this is the mighty king, but he's not coming into the capital on a war horse. He's coming in on a little foal of a donkey in humility. In the last chapter, in chapter 11, Jesus is talking about humility and how he had humbled himself to come into this world to do this, this work of service that he did in his humility. And he's called us to the same thing. So the, the king has come into the capital and just his presence, the suffering son of man who comes to Jerusalem to give his life as a ransom for many, which is going to take place in just a few days. Enters the capital, not like a messianic figure that they hoped for. They thought he was going to come and cleanse the temple of the Gentile pollution. Just because these Gentiles were in, there was a court of the Gentiles for Gentiles to go and worship the living God. As you know, as you read the New Testament, the book of Acts, it talks about God-fearers. In every synagogue, there was a group of God-fearers, and those, these were Gentiles who had come to believe that the God of Israel was a true and living God. And so they came to worship among these Jews at their synagogues, and so they became the first converts as the gospel went out through the land. And Paul and Silas and Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas first, then Paul and Silas, they went and preached at all the synagogues. And there were always God-fearers there. There were Gentiles who actually believed in the reality of the true and living God, the God of Israel. And they were the first converts. They were the ones who believed the gospel. And it made the, Gen it made the Jews very jealous and upset about it. And so you see this developing throughout the New Testament, throughout the book of Acts. Now what Jesus wants his people to understand as he comes into the city, he wants the, these people in Jerusalem to see that their rightful king, his reign is of peace and service. This is the servant king. It's amazing. And you are servants. That's one of your titles. You are servants of God. And that, that's what makes you special and significant, that you are the servants of God. And uh, 
one of the things, if you read, if you read church history, you know that th this came after the Maccabean revolt and how they, if you, if you remember, there was a, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, which is quite, was quite well known, and he had, he had polluted the temple. He had gone into the temple and offered swine meat on the altar to the god of Zeus, to Zeus. But the Maccabeans revolted. They said, this is God's house. And uh, they revolted in 164 BC. And three days, uh, three years to the day after Antiochus Epiphanes defiled the temple and the altar, they sanctified it. And it had been set, it had been sanctified. But in the meantime, there were those who were inhabiting the, the temple that were not worshiping the God, the living God as they should, and they were polluting the temple. So the, so the king of glory shows up. So this first judgment is a judgment against the temple itself, the very center of Judaism. Yet its worship was hollow, and Jesus exposes it as a den of robbers rather than a house of prayer. See, the church of Jesus Christ is... Uh, a new thing that Jesus uh, gave us under the new covenant. And in the, in the church, we don't just have one race of people, one nation, all the nations. We have people from all the nations in the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, you can go around the world. And remember Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well when she says, well, yeah, but you Jews worship in Jerusalem and we worship here on this mountain. And Jesus said to her, the day is coming and now is, when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship, because God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, there's been a lot written about what that means, and no doubt you've heard a lot of explanations, but certainly it means that wherever we are as believers and we gather together, where two or three are gathered together in his name, there he is in the midst of them. We can be in Arkansas, or nights in California, and God is here. Jesus Christ is here. And so when we come together, we are to manifest the effect of having Jesus live in us. How would, how would Jesus treat people? That's the way in his power we are to treat people. He has called us to do this. And sometimes I wonder, what would it be like if Jesus showed up? If this one true light showed up here among us, what would take place? What was his attitude be? And what would he say to us? Well, there's a second judgment that comes right after this, and that's the judgment on the priests. And their problem is there's no praise. They don't praise God. Let me read this to you, verses 14 through 17 of verse 21, of chapter 21, rather, of Matthew. It says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed him. Now, first of all, the blind and the lame were not allowed in the temple. <laughs> they were unclean. But they come to Jesus, and Jesus heals them. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the, the wonderful things that he had done, and the children also who were shouting in the temple, these children are shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of, God, of David they became indignant. That is, the rulers became indignant. These chief priests became indignant when these children were calling, saying, save us now, son of David. 
See, son of David was what Jesus was, and it's also how the Messiah is described. He's a descendant of David. And they said to Jesus, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself? Do you know that it's, it's the, the living God who gives you the desire to praise the living God? You know it's because the Holy Spirit lives in you that he encourages you and he empowers you and he leads you to praise God. That is to use your mouth as an instrument to praise the living God. He's the one who's putting that on your heart and in your spirit. And he left them and he went out of the city to Bethany and he spent the night there. So the judgment on the priests were they didn't want to allow any praise. Clergy can be that way, you know. We don't believe in clergy laity. It's not taught in the scriptures. We are all servants of God. We're all ministers of the living God. We are diakonos. All of us are servants. We're supposed to serve the living God. And uh, so we don't even have the right to say, hey, uh, would you hold it down a little bit? We don't want you making so much noise praising the living Christ. Well, there's a third judgment, and that's the judgment of the fig tree. It's really a picture of the nation of Israel. Uh, it's found in verses 18 through 22. Notice what it says. Now in the morning, when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road. By the way, the fig tree is one of the primary symbols of Israel, along with the vineyard. The vineyard and the vine are pictures of Israel, but also the fig tree. And so he says again, now in the morning when he was returning to the city, he became hungry, seeing a lone fig tree by the road. He came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, no longer shall there be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Now this was the time of the year where the fig trees wouldn't have a large crop of the really sweet figs, but there would be, there would be figs on the trees uh, that were a little bit bitter, but the poor would always eat them because they were nourishing, even though they didn't taste as good as the later crop. So this was the early crop, but he comes to this tree and it has no fruit at all, just leaves. And so he curses the tree. Well, what's going on? Some people think Jesus is being cruel. No, what he's doing is he is giving them a picture. This is a living uh, symbol and picture of Israel. They were not bearing fruit. They were the people who were planted where they were planted in order to bear fruit that would display the glory of the living God, the God that they serve. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, how did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do this, you not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to the mountain, be taken away, taken up and cast into the sea will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Now the point is, is that if you want God to be glorified, and your, your prayers are that, that's the motive of your prayers. You want God to be glorified in your life. You can pray with confidence because God hears you. He wants to glorify his son. And, uh, and so he says even moving a mountain is not beyond him. 
Now, that doesn't mean you should go out and test your ability to move Mount Diablo today, because it's not you, it's the living God. But is there something in your path that is an excuse for you failing to bear fruit for God? Ah, if you knew my circumstances, if you knew my wife, if you knew my job, if you knew this, if you knew that, you would realize why you never see me bearing any fruit. The fruit, of course, is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, meekness, faith. And I've, I've messed up that list, but you, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, and we bear those fruit. We bear the fruit of love. We bear the fruit of joy. We bear the fruit of compassion on people. And he says, if, if they were not bearing fruit, the nation of Israel, they were hard-nosed. And they believed that they were better than the Gentiles. And so they always got angry with Jesus because he ministered to Gentiles. Once in a while, over the course of the life of our church, we've had people come to this church who had nothing. They couldn't even, they didn't even look presentable, so to speak. I'm not talking about myself. Uh, and, and yet we received them because they wanted to receive the reality of Jesus Christ. And so we want, we want to bear fruit for the glory of Christ. Christ is glorified when we bear fruit. And the reason that he brings this judgment upon them is, like the vine, they're a picture. This is a picture. The, the fig tree was a picture of Israel, and they were not bearing fruit. And so God, Jesus brings his judgment upon them. There's one last one, and that is the judgment on the leadership. They have no integrity. <laughs> uh, you, you, I know you're aware that leaders are supposed to have integrity. Throughout the gospel, there's been this growing unwillingness of the religious leadership of the Jews to countenance Jesus and his claims. They were, there was a growing animosity towards him because he was a threat to them. Every one of his claims had been validated before them in both words and deeds. The Jewish leadership of his day had plenty of leaves, and, uh, but they didn't have any fruit. Jesus had fruit. He left a trail of the fruit of the Spirit wherever he went in the way he treated people. In fact, sometimes it's shocking to us to read these accounts of the way Jesus related to people. The woman who came in and washed his feet with her tears and dried his feet with her hair at the Pharisee's house, Simon's house, in his courtyard, and he was so offended. If Jesus was a prophet, he would know who was touching him. Guess what? He wants you to make contact with him. Isn't that amazing? He actually wants you to live your life in fellowship with him, in contact with him, and that what your life produces is, the, is a product that is produced by Jesus Christ. He gives you compassion and love that you have come to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. I read this, this uh, it was kind of a, it was a survey, but it was to determine how, where a person was in their spiritual growth. And I read through it, and I was trying to think about it and answer these questions. And some of the things that I asked was like, have you explained the gospel of Jesus Christ to an un, a non-Christian in your life? Have you, ever ex, have you ever explained the gospel of Jesus Christ to people in your path? 
And I, I read the, the result of this. It was kind of a survey, and they told the results of it. It was shocking how many believers there were who had never in their life actually explained the gospel to someone who was not a Christian. And yet, he's given the gospel to you as a gift. It's a gift that you have that he wants you to share. And he's given you the responsibility to share it. He wants you to bear fruit. And this is what this judgment is about, is that this, this leadership has no integrity at all because the reason that they will not support Jesus Christ and his claims is because he is a threat to them. He will expose them for why they are in leadership and what leadership means to them. Because leadership is to be the desire we have to lead people to Christ and lead people to maturity. We're told in the book of Ephesians that he placed uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers in the church for the equipping of the saints so that they can do the work of ministry. That's what he's called us to do. He's called us to equip the saints so they can do the work of ministry and the church of Christ will be built up. Now, built up doesn't mean like building a, a church building. It means to be a church, a mature church in which people are coming to faith in Christ and growing in Christ. And uh, somebody ought to be on your list of uh, leading them to the one and only one who can save them. The reason that we often do not receive his blessings that he has promised us, that he has wants to give us, is because we don't want to trust him. There's other things that we desire more than this living relationship with Christ. And so we are called to take our, our calling seriously. When I read that passage in Ephesians chapter 4 about why Jesus, when he ascended on high, gave the church these gifts of pastors, teachers, apostles, and prophets, it makes me kind of shiver. Am I equipping the saints for the work of ministry? You know, I, uh, I've been trained to teach the Bible, and uh, I feel comfortable doing that. But that doesn't necessarily mean I'm equipping the church for the work of ministry. There has to be the kind of application of the Word of God that you can understand, how do I put this into practice? How do I get this actively working in my life? And that's what we have been called to do. Now, the problem is it's kind of offensive sometimes. Sometimes it's like, it's like you're hearing the guy who's doing this, you know, why don't you get off your rear end and do something? That's not what we're saying. We're saying as you engage in life, God's going to put people in your path. And he simply wants you to trust him and believe him enough to speak to those people about Christ. Now, it may be uh, very, very scary at first. It may even be a jumble at first, and you're trying to explain truth. But the fact is, the only way you learn to do that, if you come to understand that that's who you are, that you are the people of God that he has chosen to be his ambassadors, his spokespersons, the people who are going to speak for him. Who in the world is speaking for Jesus in this world? Well, you think, oh, well, it's that guy, there's a guy preaching over here in Sacramento. 
at this auditorium that holds 50,000 people. And he's going to be, he's, he's a spokesman of the Lord, so we're going to go listen to him because he's going he's to speak words that we should be speaking. Most people come to faith in Christ through the witness of a friend or a family member. Most people, that's how they come to Christ. Maybe most of you have come to Christ in that way. But what he has done when he saved you, he has transformed you into an ambassador of Jesus Christ. You're a spokesperson. So, for example, I've had this happen to me a lot of times where somebody brings somebody to me and say, would you, would you explain to them uh, about Jesus and about why he came into the world? And I feel like saying, no, I think you should explain it. Because this is your friend. This is a person who knows you. And you know what? It, isn't, it may be scary to you, but you have the Holy Spirit living in you to empower you. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples when, uh, when he was ready to, they knew that he was going to leave them? And so he says to them, they're going to they're gonna arrest you, they're going to drag you before the synagogue leaders and before the, the, the law, and, and you're going to have to give a word of explanation. But he says, but don't worry about what you're going to say. Why? Why shouldn't you worry about what you're going to say? If I told you, hey, in uh, five minutes, I want you, Larry, I want you to give your testimony. In five minutes, because I'm going to stop in five minutes. Would that put any pressure on you? No, not Larry, but most of us. He wouldn't, he wouldn't be intimidated. But uh, we have been called to this. This is, this is who we are. And we have the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, don't worry about what you're going to say. The Spirit will give you the words to speak. Now, I don't think that means you ought to just uh, never go to the Word of God and do some investigation. Start in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, the first five verses or so, tells you what the gospel is. And so now you know the God, what the gospel is. It said Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried because he was really dead. He was raised according to the Scriptures. And he was seen by up to 500 people at one time. That's the proof that he truly raised from the dead. We're going to celebrate his resurrection next week. And the resurrection is God saying, Yes, I accept what my son did for you. You can trust him and I will save you. Isn't that amazing? And so he's given you here this simple formula in 1 Corinthians 15 that I can quote from memory just because it's so easy to remember. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And he was buried. And he was raised from the dead according to the Scriptures. And he was seen. And he gives a list of people who saw him. And then he says, and up to, 100, up to 500 brethren at one time. That's so easy, isn't it? You don't have to write that down. You can remember that. And so when you're talking to somebody and they say to you, uh, and they find out you're a Christian, and they say to you, why are you a Christian? Well, I heard this message 25 years ago, and I believed it, and it changed my life. And this was the message. Jesus died for my sins, according to the Scriptures, and he was buried, and he was raised from the dead, according to the Scriptures, and he was seen by his disciples and by 500 people at once. It's that simple. I've actually, had, I've actually been in a situation where a person turns to Christ in faith. They put their trust in Jesus Christ, and their life begins to be changed. 
I've also been with people that it just drug out on and on and on and on, and I never did see anything take place, didn't see faith germinated and start to bear fruit. But let me tell you, you're missing a great opportunity if you're never sharing the, the, the gospel. It's a wonderful opportunity. And all you have to do is open your eyes. Who is in your life right now? Who is it that crosses your path on a regular basis? Maybe somebody you work with, a neighbor, somebody you have conversations with, and you're thinking, well, that will destroy my relationship. As soon as I say that, we're not even going to have a relationship anymore, a friendship anymore. Baloney. That isn't true. Sometimes people have, they have a real, they really do want to know why you're a Christian. And for you to tell them, because I found out that this was really true in my experience, that Jesus died for my sins, and he was buried, and he rose again. And he was, he was seen by those who knew him. You remember the story of the, the Emmaus Road, where Jesus walks along the Emmaus Road with these two disciples, and they're, they're so sad, and they're so downcast because he had been crucified. They didn't know he had been raised from the dead. Seven-mile walk. How would you like to have a seven-mile walk with Jesus? Well, how long has it been? How many years have you been walking with him? If you've been walking with him for 30 years, 20 years, 10 years, five years, even a year, certainly you have walked seven miles. If you haven't, I got this app on my telephone I can give to you to count your steps. If you haven't walked seven miles in a year, uh, something's wrong. And you're walking with Jesus. And he's going to put people in your path that you can share Christ with. And I don't want to be like Israel. I don't want to be in this, I don't want to be uh, judged by Jesus Christ. I want the presence of Christ to be in our midst. I want us to be so aware that Jesus is here, that he is in our midst. And I want to, I want to be unashamed by it. I want to know that when he comes, the light enters into our presence, that he's not, he's not showing up our unbelief and our failure to obey. I want, it to, I, want him to, I, I want his presence to show that we are followers of Jesus Christ. We are believers in Jesus Christ. We are walking with Christ. Some of you are facing some deep trials that I know about. And I know that it's really tough to go through trials. And yet it's the place where, according to Romans chapter 5, it's the place where God shows himself to you in intimacy like no other place. He floods your heart with a sense of his love for you while you're going through the trial. So don't despise the trials. Maybe this is what God's going to use to strengthen you and to empower you and turn you into a, a speaking ambassador of Jesus Christ. Where you actually, you know, you actually open your mouth and you talk to people about Jesus. Um, at the, at the risk of embarrassing my friend, um, you have been talking about Jesus for a lot of years, right, Nancy? I'm not going to tell you how old Nancy is because she gets really mad when I do that, but she's, she's been walking with Christ for many years. I knew her husband really well, and he was, he was somebody who walked close to Christ. And you can't keep them 
from sharing the truth about Jesus to people that God brings into their path. And so I just want to appeal to you. Jesus Christ is the light of the world, but he also exposes our hearts to what's really going on. And he shows us by his presence just how desperately we need him. And we need to make him known to others. Um, I, want us, I want us to manifest the character of Jesus. That's what the fruit of the Spirit are. They are the character of Jesus. And he wants us as a local church to display those characteristics. So when people come among us, they say, wow, those people really are characterized by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and meekness and faith. That's what's important. That's more important than, than a finished building. It actually is more important that if, if he's building us and that he's changing us so that we display the truth about who Jesus Christ is. So let me pray for you. Our Father, as I bow my head before you and my heart before you, Father, I'm so grateful for your loving kindness towards us that we are a people that you have set your love upon. You've called us together and you've made us a church, a called-out group of followers of Jesus Christ who come together to worship him on a regular basis because we want the world to know who he is. And I just pray that you would work in our lives, Father. Give us a deep and profound hope in you. Even as we're going through trials today, facing things that seem almost impossible, we pray that, I pray, Father, that we would cast our anxieties on you because it matters to you about us. And so we pray that you would do that, that you would shape us into witnesses for Jesus Christ, that we would see a host of people coming to faith in Christ over these coming years. Father, we ask for that. We ask you specifically for it, that you would make us fruitful witnesses of Jesus Christ. Change our hearts and our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.